Kermit is is more outgoing than I am, certainly. And I I am more laid back. I can say I can say things that he can't, so to speak. So you find it easier to let yourself go. <laughs> to say it's something outrageous. Yes, that's true. Do something yes, outrageous. That's true. I I don't do outrageous. I I do as outrageous things. That's true. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to A Feat of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, season one, in the can. Yeah, the last few months kind of feel like a blur, so it's it's weird to know that we are here now, but it's been a, a really enjoyable ride. I'd say the last 12 months have kind of been a blur, but that's separate from what we're talking about. Yeah, here we are. This is our season one wrap-up show. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to remind everyone to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, lunaticdaring.com for their watch list, our bibliography, and all of our latest episodes, and hopefully, you know, maybe some other cool stuff down the road. The first season of The Muppet Show wrapped production on November 26th, 1976. They had worked through American Thanksgiving, and after another two weeks of post-production, Henson and the rest of the Muppet gang headed home for the holidays. On the trip back, Jim must have been pleased. Exhausted, but pleased. It was almost 15 years to the day since he had voluntarily ended his first show, Sam and Friends, and what years those had been. He had turned 40 that September, and was now the father of three girls and two boys. Henson Associates, formerly Muppets Inc., had made he and Jane rich. And the Muppets, and Jim with them, were internationally beloved and famous. He had sold untold gallons of coffee, told tales of Tinker D and Muppet Land, traded zingers with a crooning cowpoke, appeared on dozens of talk and variety shows, been nominated for an Academy Award, and experimented a few times in television, got shoved in a drawer by Lorne Michaels, and helped launch a revolution in educational entertainment. Jim had mastered and reinvented an art form, met fabulous, famous, and fascinating people, assembled and nurtured a creative family disguised as a company, overflowing with talent both in front of and behind the camera. Writers, musicians, designers, builders, inventors, producers, and of course, the performers. His kindred puppeteers, who had gelled into a unit as tight and as impressive as any theater troupe in the world. They were the engine that drove the Muppets, and Jim was the spark, letting his creativity fuel theirs, providing structure when it was necessary, and provoking chaos when it wasn't, and leading them not with power trips and harsh words, but with a quiet and kind confidence that was impossible not to follow. Now he had his own show again, and the first season had been, by any measure, a success. It had taken a few false starts, and suffered some growing pains, and had wrestled with the format a little bit. But they knew what the show was now, and they knew how to make it. It would get better, sure, as they got better, as they learned what was working and what was not. Season 2 was going to be so much fun. It was not a bad time to be Jim Henson. The seven or eight episodes that we spent watching things leading up to The Muppet Show, telling Jim's story, watching all of his early work, watching him progress, how do you think that affected how you watched The Muppet Show? It definitely gave me a greater understanding and appreciation for just how it was progressing, but the other thing that I have to keep in mind is Muppet Babies was probably my first exposure to Henson, like when I was really small, but a lot of my relationship with the work of Henson has to do with his non-mainline Muppet stuff. So things like the storyteller, the dark crystal or labyrinth. So seeing a lot of that early, for lack of a better term, scrappy material was something that I thought was really fascinating. And then seeing how it did lean into the Muppet show, especially with a lot of those early uh, technical sketches that didn't necessarily have a punchline. We've been focusing on the Muppet show and the Muppet team in general, but you're never really not going to feel the hand of Jim as it proceeds. And that goes all the way up to the season finale and the penultimate episode too, I think, with the, the shadow puppets. Pretty much anything before we got to the Muppet show was fairly new to me. And I found it to be, I found that it gave me a, I'm not going to say better because I've always loved the Muppet show, but a different appreciation for the show. Mm -hmm. Seeing where it comes from, there's something rewarding 
I know so much more than I did a year ago when I started researching this. Having the context of the man's life and the way he thought and the way he worked and the type of people he liked to surround himself with. In addition to that, watching his successes, and they are mostly successes, but there are failures. I enjoyed Tales of Tinker D, but it didn't go anywhere. It was a failed pilot. And to watch his kind of struggle to get his, after quitting Salmon Friends on his own accord, seeing it take him another 15 years to get his own show again. Growing up, Jim's favorite comic strip was Walt Kelly's Pogo. And Pogo was, took place in the, in the Deep South, and it was about a, it had a bunch of animals that talked and stuff. And it's actually kind of a tough read if you read it now, because it's written in such a very sharp vernacular. He always wanted to assemble his own Pogo, his own Walt Kelly world. So watching these characters pop up, when you watch the Frog Prince and Robin shows up, you're like, oh, Robin. I don't know. I found it to be a re- very rewarding experience, just kind of going along for the ride as opposed to just jumping in. I absolutely agree. It was really nice to have that sort of bedrock context. 1976, he's more than halfway through his career. I mean, that's rough, but it is. It's more than halfway through his career. And so I think it would have been, I think it just would have been less interesting to jump straight to there when there was all this really cool stuff neither of us have seen that a lot of people haven't seen. I know after The Muppet Show hit Disney Plus for a few days, the Wilkins and Wilkins commercials went viral. So what, what we're just going to do today, just kind of quickly, is we're going to run through kind of a, uh, our lists, our, our, our best of lists for, not for the first season of The Muppet Show, although that's included, but for our first season, for the first season of A Feed of Lunatic Daring. These lists, of course, are not binding. <laughs> and if you ask me tomorrow, my opinions will probably be different. This is just kind of for fun and just to spark a little conversation about what we watched. Best Muppet Show guest star. What's your number three? Uh, Peter Ustinov. Dr. Ogobaum. Yeah, here I am, Felix Ogobaum in Copenhagen, Denmark. Yes, Dr. Ogobaum. Can you tell us about this cure? Yeah, of course. It was right under our noses. Do you believe that? I'm so excited. First, you stay away from sick people. That's very important. Then you wrap your head in a number 10 size brown paper bag. And you pour honey over yourself. And you hold your breath for about an hour or so, eh? Uh, And this will cure the common cold? Positively. (laughs) And then again. There's something specific, and we'll we'll get to it a little bit later, but... There was a dynamic that we would see before they really had firm footing for Fozzie with other people sort of mentoring him and, like, making him feel welcome. And Ustinov was just an absolute sweetheart to everyone he talked to. One of those people that I only knew from a few things going in. I, I literally knew him from Logan's Run, but who's your number three? <laughs> uh, my number three is Valerie Harper. <laughs> Oh, Valerie Harper, welcome to The Muppet Show. Oh, we're so glad that you can come and be with us. Oh, me too, Kermit. You know, I'm not filming Rhoda this week. I got a hiatus. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Did you get it lifting something? One, I think she absolutely killed her episode. And also, she was the guest star in what I would call the first modern episode. Uh The moment when she walks in backstage instead of showing, you know, instead of showing up on stage for the first time or whatever, she just kind of comes in from the backstage and I think she really laid it all out there with the Broadway bit and I don't know I really enjoyed the Valerie Harper episode I really enjoyed her in it she threw herself into it but it also is paired in my head with a different phase of the show you know like she that episode was the future of the show uh, who you got at number two uh Moomin Chants, actually in relation to what we were saying earlier about Jim's early work and seeing that sort of arc of his creative career up to this point He's known as a creative personality, he's known as a very warm personality, but I don't think enough attention is paid to his appreciation of craft. For me, it was such a good capstone for that first season, for us to see something that's not technically puppetry, but falls into a very similar domain, and just shows different ways to, sh- to tell stories or to evoke emotional responses. I really liked that episode. Like I said, I had very strong and mixed emotions about Moment Shants from watching those episodes as a kid. Watching them now, I did, I was a lot more compelled by them. And yeah, a reminder, not only a reminder of his interest in in puppetry, I mean, I believe he was still the head of the Puppeteers of America at this point, head of their union, but also like the experimental filmmaker in him, the guy that made some experimental films in the 60s that may or may not come up a little later. Number two, I'm going to admit is a little bit of a, it's probably a little biased, but my number two is Vincent Price. Fair. Excuse me. But do you have a room for the night? 
You see, the road has washed out, and my horse had a flat tire. I love Vincent Price in a sea of kind of like what I would call safe-ish guest stars, and that's not a knock on any of them. Vincent Price was actually a little bit controversial at the time. We think of Vincent Price now, and he seems kind of campy, and he's not going to cause nearly as much stir as Alice Cooper will in the future. I don't know. I loved the the Dracula sketch. Uh, not for nothing, my seven-year-old voted that as her favorite moment of the first season. Mm. I'm glad it's on Disney+, Plus because it wasn't on the DVDs. His big kind of rocking number that he has at the end with Uncle Deadly really kind of tweaked with his image. And I don't know. I just, I get warm and fuzzy when I see Vincent Price on screen. And I also think part of it is the episode scared me as a kid. And so to watch it now, having a much bigger appreciation of Vincent Price as an actor, much more knowledge about him as a man, I just, I really enjoyed it. That was a really strong episode. And it was, we talked a lot about guests that I wouldn't have recognized because I wasn't around in the 70s and I didn't necessarily understand. Vincent Price's, uh, I don't know if it's accurate to say he's got a sort of mimetic quality. There's an aspect of him that is going to carry forward for at least a good while longer. Because I haven't seen a lot of his movies. To see him in the flesh and just living in that moment with the Muppets and just having fun with it, it, it sort of reminded me of uh, Raul Julia in Street Fighter. I know that sounds weird, but just hear me out. Uh, Street Fighter was Raul Julia's last movie. Raul Julia was an amazing actor. Those things are both true. Street Fighter is not necessarily a good movie. Three for three. A great movie could be made about the making of Street Fighter. Probably, yeah. Every time that you see Raul Julia on screen in that movie, he is having the best day of his life. Or at least presenting that he is. And he chews up every line he has, and it's amazing. Vincent Price's, he showed that same level of ease and that same level of comfort. And this was in tandem with the Muppet crew getting a bit more ambitious about what they were doing and how they were going to incorporate their guests. What's your number one? Uh, it's, it's Rita Moreno. Yeah, my, me, mine too. Mine okay. too. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I figured we'd agree on that one. People just don't know how to talk. They speak gibberish. They don't say nothing. You just don't listen. When you talk to people, they don't listen. They look at you very peculiar. fabulous, fabulous. I'm talking to this crazy guy here. I'm talking about war and this. And then he tells me something about the price of coconuts. Now, am I crazy or is he crazy? What did she say? I don't know. I wasn't listening. I was listening and I still don't know what she said. What's the matter with you? You don't understand English? No, I don't understand English. Uh, Don't make fun of the lady's accent. Like, I was almost positive it was going to be yours. I was like, maybe I should mix it up. But I was like, nah, Rita gets it. There's, there's no reason to be hipster about it. Right. She was amazing. And that was, that was when they were still definitely finding their footing, too. But she... Much like Vincent did, although in a very different direction, she owned every time she was on screen, and she was completely at ease, giving it back to Miss Piggy, or, you know, in that, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the dance number that she was in. Oh, the Apache dance. That's uh, what it was called. Adios Muchachos is the name of the song. She was incredible. I think she set the bar. I mean, she won an Emmy for it, rightfully so. If you remember that episode, the backstage story is nothing. Yep. She's what you want in a guest star. When she's on screen, she's in charge. Everything kind of bends around her. The opening dance number, the Apache dance, and Fever are enough. But she's got other great moments. I mean, I couldn't come up with any... There was nobody... I mean, she's the first person I wrote down. She was the last person I put down, but that was just because I wasn't being honest with myself. Do you have any honorable mentions you want to throw out before we move on? Um, Ethel Merman, actually. She's my next one, actually. She's a definite honorable mention. And Sandy Duncan was also an honorable mention because... Also on mine, too. Also on mine. I think that the sliding scale here was the degree of comfort that the stars had with the the Muppets and the situations they found themselves in. That musical number with Ethel Merman, where she is just going through a bunch of hits with all of the Muppets, she just looks like she's having a great time. I'd also like to bring up Bruce Forsyth. Mm-hmm. He was a big surprise. And uh, the only other person I wrote down... and there, Plenty of them were great, but the other honorable mention I wrote down was Joel Gray. I think Joel Gray was the first one to kind of be a Muppet along with the rest of them. <laughs> so our, our next category real quick is going to be best song slash musical numbers from everything that we watched. Our, our favorite song slash musical numbers. I'll go ahead first. Um, my number three is Lydia the Tattooed Lady. Hit it! Lydia, oh Lydia, say have you met Lydia? Lydia the Tattooed lady she has eyes that folks adore so and a torso even more so Lydia. 
that's episode two, right? It's one of the only times all season you get to see Kermit performing, but I can't. The heart wants what the heart wants, and I love Lydia the Tattooed Lady. <laughs> that's that's kind of that's kind of the. Um, I don't necessarily have like a whole list of rationale I can give you. You don't need it. It's music. It just feels a certain way. Exactly. Yeah, this is a going with my heart kind of pick, and Lydia the Tattooed Lady is not only I think is a a really well done number, an early number, but also knowing what I know about Jim's taste in music. It's a song that kind of, I don't know, exemplifies what he's looking for in a good Muppet song. Mm -hmm. One that it can be fun and funny, but you can also maybe uh, uh, dramatize a little bit as well. You know, something that is visually evocative, and that song definitely is visually evocative. (laughs) As you describe her tattoos, right, Mm -hmm. the lyrics of the song are giving you something to play with. And and I think Jim performs it really well. And um, yeah, so that was my number three. My number three was actually... uh... One Note Samba from episode 24. This is just a little samba built upon a single note. Other notes are bound to follow, but the root is still that note. Oh, nice. Okay. Just because there's a point where they knew what to do with Miss Piggy, and then we didn't see her for a few episodes, and then we saw her incrementally. Similar to uh, Rita being able to give it back to Piggy, seeing Gabe Allard be able to just take it and run with it, that was a great, great number. Any sketch where Piggy gets into it with the guest star mm-hmm. is, is always going to be great. But yeah, no, that's a really good pick. My number two, I'm going to go with a weird one. Okay. I'm going to pick Sweetem's Gonna Hit. Hit and smash. Wally Froggy get mighty bad. From the Frog Prince. Uh-huh. I just love that scene so much. Kermit breaks Robin out of his cage, and Sweetums is trying to kill the frogs. Mm-hmm. I really liked the Frog Prince. Had never seen it before and really liked it. That number just, I don't know, there was something, Sweetums was really funny. It was really kind of violent from what we had seen at that point. The, the number was fairly elaborate and fairly sophisticated. My number two is sort of a split, and I I had a hard time with it specifically because they were two songs that I found entertaining for very similar reasons. Um, and there was the, the UK spot from 115, It's Not Where You Start, where Scooter just keeps coming in and telling Rolf that he has to play <laughs> faster. 20 seconds, all right, hit it! It's not where you start, it's where you finish. It's not how you go, it's how you land. That's 15 seconds! Here's the one shot, they call him a clutch. Then I run the favorite, all he needs is a seconds. Your final return will not diminish. And you can find the dream of the crop. Four, it's not where you start, three, it's where you finish. Two, and I'm gonna finish on time! And then by that same measure in 104, the increased speed Sunny with Electric Mayhem. They're very high energy, but also you've got that nice weave-in of general Muppet antics. I couldn't pick between the two of them because they were more or less for the same reason, although they're very different songs. They did it with Tenderly, too. They did, didn't they? What was your number one, though? So my number one is obviously Real Live Girl. Oh, God. Pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with a real live girl. I forgot about that one. <laughs> That's what my honorable mentions. Um, I promise I won't go back to this well again, but my number one is Fever. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. When you put your arms around me, I get the fever that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. Yes, I'm biased because it's Rita, <laughs> but the images from it, the dress, the opening shot of it, Floyd playing the bass in the foreground with her in the in the midground, and then Animal in the background, and just the way it plays out, and it's just. I don't know. To me, it's like if I was going to show somebody what like the season one of the Muppet Show was, I would show them Fever. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm actually inclined to go back and rewatch West Side Story, but it's not a hard no anymore. So that's that's something. Cool it. 
<laughs> okay, I think I know what your number one's going to be, but what is it? Oh, wait, wait. What do you think it's going to be? I think it's going to be Temptation. Yeah, you actually got it. One. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I was that much of an easy read, but you're right, Temptation is my number one. And it's from the first episode, too, before they figured out what they were doing with Piggy. It's not even Frank singing. But the build is amazing, and the progression of Piggy just working her way down toward Kermit, and Kermit realizing that the train's coming, but he can't really move. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, it's on my honorable mentions, for sure. It's a very, again, it's a very early... I don't know if you want to call it a, a not really a linchpin, but it's a very early road sign. I was surprised you didn't mention Froggy won a Corton. So, we're going to get to that in a little bit. I also had Temptation on my list. I had uh, Adios Muchachos, but I did f figured I couldn't do two Rita uh, Moreno things in one list. I really wanted to put Manamana, but I got a little too hipster. <laughs> it's in so many different, you know, Manamana in every form mm -hmm. is great. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's because, like, that's the, sh that's the clip that everybody knows. I should also give an honorable mention to the first... Muppet Show recording of being green. The last one I wanted to mention was Tomorrow. I really enjoyed both of the country trio numbers. Unfortunately, we're not going to get any more of those, but I really enjoyed Tomorrow with Jim and Jerry and Frank. You cannot go tomorrow anymore today, for the train that goes tomorrow is a mile upon its way. I was so disappointed, I was mad enough to swear. The train had gone tomorrow and it left me standing there. The man was right in telling me, you are a howling jay. You cannot go tomorrow. Well, I guess in town I'll stay. I don't get it. So, Nick, as we have reached the end of the first season, we have some goodbyes that we have to say. We have some people, some things, and unfortunately some Muppets that we're going to say goodbye to. The first person I want to talk about is Aaron Oscar. This will be, this is her only season as a performer on The Muppets. Uh, it has a couple of consequences. One, it leaves them without any women in the key cast. But it's also going to cause a little upheaval and decide the fate of several female Muppets on the show. She will be back for Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas and other things. But we're saying goodbye to her as a performer on The Muppet Show. Likewise, John Lovelady, this will also his last season as a regular performer, will also show up in Emmett Otter. Executive producer and head writer Jack Burns will be leaving the show after this season. Jack was kind of Lou Grade's only creative decision that he made for Jim to hire this kind of experienced writer when Jim knew that the true voice of the Muppets is Jerry Jewell. But Burns' departure isn't totally like bad blood or anything. Jack Burns is the co-writer of the Muppet movie. It's not like they hate each other after this. Along with Jack, writer Mark London, who has been the co-writer also on every episode since episode three. He's leaving too. He didn't work a lot after The Muppet Show. Uh, very few credits between that and his last credit, which was 1993. Passed away in 2010. But we're going to lose a couple of things too. No more panel discussions. We have seen the end of the panel discussions. Episode 119 with Vincent Price was the last of those. I've never been a huge fan, but they've given us some great moments. I really like the Rita Moreno one. I like the Candace Bergen one, too, just because I like Sam the Eagle getting the piss taken out of him. The blackouts, the little, you know, interstitial jokes, those are gone. Uh, the last one was with Ethel Merman. And then uh, also in episode 119, as we celebrated or discussed uh, the talking houses. No more talking houses. These sketches ending are not unrelated to the departure of Jack Burns as head writer. Burns and London were both Laugh-In writers, and the blackouts were something they specifically did on Laugh-In. 
Okay, so here's the hard part. So there are going to be several Muppets that are either going to leave or be relegated to the background and in what some would call a case worse than death kind of be turned into whatnots. Whenever the Oscars or something does in memoriams like this, they like to have some music. So I, I, I picked up a couple choices. So I want you to see what you think. If we get you see 290s? Well, I mean, I, I like that song. I just... Let's try, let's try another one. We got. Let's let's try this one. Tattoos and memories and death skin on trial. For what it's worth. To nineteen ninety nine prom. I was thinking graduation, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go classy. We'll go with a nice uh, instrumental. The two headed singer. Fozzie's agent. Irving Bazaar. Menomina, whose star looked so bright but spent most of the season sitting in the audience, dreaming of what might have been. King Rupert slash King Goshbosh. Been with him since Tinkerdy. Always loved him, but long lived the king. The Gugalala Jubilee Jug Band, Pa, Slim, and the other three. The official story is they split following a dispute over whether or not to put a hole in their wash tub. That will make more sense to Nick when we watch Emmett Otter. <laughs> Tom, Dick, and Harry, the three-headed monster, who had no discernible talent amongst the three of them. Disgraced screen actor Fudge McGurk, star of The Phantom of the Soap Opera. Fozzie's cousin, whoever that dude was. The Frank Oz puppet. Vendaface, the prop too expensive for David Laser to only use once. This one's Heartbreaker, the red-headed dancer, better known as Animal's girlfriend. I like to think that they got married and that he returns home to her every night after a hard day of drumming and eating stuff he shouldn't have. But um, I'm kind of afraid his woman chasing ways, and I mean literally chasing women around, <laughs> may uh, drive them apart. Although I think maybe she knows it's part of an act. Well, there's that, and also maybe they didn't actually make it, and Animal's just trying to cover that hole in his heart, since he doesn't have someone he can properly dip anymore. Now the, now the tough ones. Wanda will be a victim of Aaron Oscar's departure. Wayne will perform some numbers on his own in the future and even do some acting, but the duo is no more. And Wanda is going to kind of be downgraded to a whatnot, which is very sad. But Hollywood is littered with broken dreams. All right, I know you've been dreading this one. Hilda. Hilda will be used in the background or in the audience a few times, but she's not going to speak anymore. Our favorite Romani seamstress. This is, again, due to the departure of Aaron Oscar, her primary performer, and uh, her voice. And last, George, the janitor. He will also kind of be relegated to the background. He shows up in, like, the Muppet Christmas Carol, basically as a whatnot. He's going to be kind of pushed off to the side. He definitely will no longer be the janitor of the Muppet Theater. A job that, by the way, he has held before Scooter's uncle even bought the place. Which is a, a real shame, because uh, we all know how much George loves his pop. So it's very sad. But next season, we're going to meet some new characters uh, that will fill this hole in our hearts. But I didn't want us to, I didn't want us to end this season without paying tribute to um, the uh, ones, we, ones we're losing. is my command before the king I humbly stand. Have you finished your ballad to the lovely princess Gwendolinda? Fair-haired beauty for whose love every knight in the kingdom would gladly risk his head. Yeah, that one. Have you finished writing the ballad? I have cogitated, correlated, syncopated, and related, orchestrated, and created songs to please the king. Does that mean you finished? I have finished. Well, let's hear them. It is the princess' date of birth. Let bells ring out the news. We'll celebrate with joy and mirth in a party, I suppose. What was that last word? Suppose, your highness. 
Out! Out! Top three surprises. What was your number number three surprise of the season? And like I said, the season, I mean our season. So the special wire from 107 is still something that caught me completely off guard. Okay. And I know there are multiple ways to interpret it, but I went straight to the worst one. And I was like, wow. I think my number three surprise was Wilkins and Wilkins. Okay, buddy, what do you think of Wilkins coffee? I never tasted it. Now, what do you think of Wilkins? We're here to persuade people to drink more Wilkins coffee. What's the club for? To get their attention. You know, people who don't drink Wilkins coffee just blow up sometimes. Oh, that's a lot of... See what I mean? I can get you Wilkins coffee for a price. I wouldn't touch it. There's no future in an attitude like that. Grandma, it's Little Red Riding Hood with your Wilkins coffee. I'm the bad wolf and I just ate your grandma. Well, have some Wilkins to wash her down. Okay, William, tell us. Better be good. Do you drink Wilkins coffee? No. We can still use the apple again. I really love my Wilkins coffee. You want to see a psychiatrist? I did. That's who told me about Wilkins. I used to love my raincoat. I knew they existed. I'd probably seen a few of them, but I mainlined like 200 of those commercials one night. <laughs> and the ingenuity, the humor, the fact that these were on television in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. When I scheduled that episode, when I was trying to figure out how to break down the episodes, it was that was kind of like, OK, well, we have to cover this because that's part of the story. But it ended up being so much fun and they ended up being so much fun. I'm so glad that people are out there or watching them and talking about them or sharing clips from them because they really are great. All right. How about your number two? It's going to be the fact that Animal found love. Like, that's something that I would have expected in season four or five. But the thing is, the impression of Animal is just that he's like a a cross-section of the Tasmanian devil in Pepe Le Pew. Anytime you see, say, Rita put him in his place or anyone else hit him back or something, especially if it's a woman, you're like, he's getting his comeuppance. That makes sense. But for him to find someone who shares that love of joint concussions the way that he does wasn't something I was expecting in season one. And I really hope it lasts. Spoilers, it doesn't. Oh. My number two is the Jimmy Dean show. Again, something that felt like an obligation to cover that I found to be an absolute delight. It is really nice to see, because Rolf is still present on The Muppet Show, but seeing him carry, carry more weight in a more direct context was really, really nice. I was reading back through some of the stuff in the, um, the Jones biography. He has a conversation with Jerry Jewell where Jewell is talking about the fact that Rolf could have been the star of The Muppet Show. The only reason Rolf wasn't a gigantic star is that he and Kermit are the same dude. And I think they even have a quote from Jane Henson saying, oh, poor Rolf. You know, like, I think she was always pulling for Rolf. But I also enjoyed Jimmy Dean himself. I thought he was quite charming on the show. And I thought their relationship was actually really good. Their chemistry was really good and and sometimes even kind of moving and sweet. And um, that was stuff I did not expect to like because he's he's just the dude that sells sausages to me. (laughs) My whole life, it's just been about sausages for Jimmy Dean. But but, but can you you name an animal who is more loyal than a dog? Ah, ah, yeah. Now, there you go. That's that's true. All right. Now, just take, for instance... Mm -hmm. There are two of us drowning in the middle of a street. Yeah. Elizabeth Taylor and me. Mm. And you can only save one of us. Which one would it be? <laughs> you're, you're right. A dog like me doesn't deserve a day. <laughs> but, but, but there are nine million other dogs who do. Yeah. So dogs of America, we're going to fight. Two to finish. Right. It's doggy dog. What a beastly thing to say. I'm sorry. The dogs of America, we must never give up. Never give up. Fight to the finish. Fight to the finish. Justice for us dogs. Justice for us dogs. Us dogs. Well, hello, Rover. (laughs) All right, what's your number one? My number one was actually Froggy Winter Corton. Okay. And more specifically, finding out that Kermit could throw hands. Because... (laughs) In any other iteration, he's just the battered spouse, and so seeing him throw down with Debo Rat wasn't something that I was expecting at all. Wow, uh, you must be he who, uh, ho ho. You better hit the road, uh-huh, uh-huh. You better hit the road or I'm gonna pulverize a tool. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Little does he know that I never missed an episode of Kung Fu. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, and you're gonna fall, big mouth and all. Oh, home. But it wasn't even the Kermit's cornered and he's got to fight his way out. He was just like, "Let's go," and I didn't expect that from Kermit. An honorable mention goes to the Bootsy Collins Robo Kermit. <laughs> 
I feel like a good 40% of that is just my own projection. So Froggy Winnicorton was my biggest surprise. I have uh, something in a similar vein. My number one surprise was how deviant the staff at Veterinarian's Hospital is. <laughs> I never would have caught this as a child, but watching these episodes and seeing Rolf and Piggy drinking and huffing laughing gas before surgery... <laughs> And the fact that Disney left that in without any content warnings. Of all these, it's the most literal surprise to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, top three disappointments. I'll go first on this one. What I want to put at number three is diversity, is the lack of diversity. Mm. That's something I think that's a much bigger topic. And that's something that's not going to be solved, you know, and, and something that's kind of unfortunately baked into it. But the the lack of anyone of color... Yes, we have a female puppeteer this first season, and of course we had Jane earlier, but but they're not they're an exception to the rule. Mm. My number three disappointment was Land of the Gorch. Doctor me. Hey, Savan, I got a problem. Hmm, it's gonna cost ya. What is it? Business, sports, or personal? Sexual. All right. <laughs> I've ne- I had never really watched it. You've heard forever that the Muppets were on Saturday Night Live, and that sounded amazing. And I thought it was just okay. There were a couple of cool little ones near the end when they got a little more meta about it. Yeah. But the early stuff just kind of laid flat. And I know why. It's because it wasn't written by the Muppets. It was written by Al Franken. It's not just that it was written by Al Franken. It was... It wasn't something that Al Franken wanted to write. You know, it was a bad match, sure. I just wonder if Jerry Jewell had been allowed to write those sketches, if they could have been a little more successful, or if... The Muppets just were not, you know, the Muppets for, are for grown-ups, but not for that that type of grown-up. What do you got? My number three is probably going to be Tom, Dick, and Harry. And it's it's a weird <laughs> one because it's not for any particular reason, but that might be it in itself. Like, they're kind of a non-entity. They felt like either they should have had more done with them or they should have given their screen time to someone else. It did feel like they put a lot of work into that puppet for it to be kind of as useless as it was. My number two is the frustrating non-existence of Salmon Friends. Fair. Salmon Friends is brought to you by Asker. The little bits that we've seen were amazing and they reminded me of liquid television, but I definitely wish there was more. Going into this... That's one thing I didn't know. I sat down and had the idea for the show and started writing. I was like, okay, we start with watching Salmon Friends. And then when I figured out how much Salmon Friends was actually available to watch and realized that that was a bulk of what was even in existence and that so much of it just disappeared into the ether because it was on live television, it really makes Salmon Friends this unknowable entity. You know, we, we love the stuff that we saw, but those things could be anomalies or they could be par for the course. We don't know. So just the fact that Sam and Friends really doesn't exist, has never existed outside of those live airings, was a bit of a disappointment that I wasn't, I didn't know going into it. I thought there was going to be a lot more Sam and Friends to dig into. That's, that's a good pick. Yeah. I feel kind of bad because for my second pick to be my second pick, it kind of feels like I'm singling him out. But Harvey Corman's hosting, or not hosting, excuse me, his, his guest run I knew him primarily from Blazing Saddles. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. He was amazing in that. And the weird thing is, he's doing very much, not the exact same, but a very similar bit. And he is trying to meld with the Muppets, but you can tell that there's like some weird core level of discomfort. Or maybe not even discomfort, but just like low presence with the Muppets. Yeah, he definitely felt like he was um, playing solitaire. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I I didn't put it on my list, but I do have Lena Horne in my honorable mentions. So I I picked a host too. Hmm. My number one disappointment is Gonzo the Great, and I never thought I would say that. In this first season, I was disheartened how little he was in it, and when he was in it, how ineffective he was most of the time. The reason it's a disappointment is because I know what's coming. I know that he's going to be one of the more popular Muppets ever. After Jim dies, Gonzo kind of becomes the lead character for, for, for like a decade there, where he's like the lead Muppet in all the movies. I love the character. I will always love the character, and, and I'm going to love him next year. But season one Gonzo is kind of a bummer to me. My number one is actually the loss of Hilda. Because she, like, I had no concept of her because she's not sticking around. There was... A weird and, like, regularly growing soft spot for Hilda Anytime I saw her on screen. I don't think she necessarily would have been a household name in the way that Kermit or Rolf or Fozzie or Piggy are. But I thought that she was pretty a pretty strong supporting role anytime she was on screen. I'm kind of sad that I won't get to see her anymore. Or the main reason Hilda gets relegated is because Aaron Oscar leaves the show. 
But it did have the, you know, and, and again, it kind of goes to my first point, which is a little bit of a, you know, the lack of diversity and the fact that when they only have one woman puppeteer and she leaves the show, they got rid of a lot of the woman puppets. Mm-hmm. That my disappointment in the, in the diversity leads to your disappointment in Hilda leaving. See you, Babushka. Our, our favorite three characters. Ooh. I didn't put Kermit and I didn't put Rolf. They're obviously amazing. What's your number three character? Tailing on to what we were talking about a moment ago, Hilda. She was like a weird dark horse this season. Because they're still refining the character, so I like to imagine we eventually end up with a Hilda that's just that particular kind of old woman who doesn't really care if she offends people and just speaks her mind, and is just able to be really, really incisive. Probably to Fozzie's detriment more than anyone else's. Yeah, she's not too nice to the bear. She tried once or twice. My number three is King Goshposh slash King Rupert. I don't know why I had never seen a lot of this early stuff. And Rupert goes all the way back to Tales of the Tinkerty, or Goshposh goes all the way back to Tales of the Tinkerty. He was such an early character in this story. I love Jim when he's a pompous ass. <laughs> I will say that every time I saw Goshposh, I, it made me nostalgic for Fraggle Rock. And they're not exactly the same character, but... Bellastone, take an invitation. You are invited to a masked ball at the palace. Bring a present for the king. No, no, change that. Uh... Why not bring a present for the king? No, no, change that. Why not bring a present for the king if you know what's good for you? Even though I wouldn't do anything to you if you didn't bring one, probably. Okay? And sign it, loads of love, your royal highness, and address it to occupants. Yes, your majesty. Every time he came on screen, I got a little fuzzy because he was just kind of an early character. And so when he showed up in the Twiggy episode, it made me excited. Your number two. Try not to judge me too harshly, but Kermit. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Well, the there's a specific reason behind that, though, because nine times out of ten, if you see Kermit, even if he's instigating something, he's playing the straight man. But we yeah. get to see a couple of moments where Kermit's got to take the piss, either because he doesn't know about the banana sketch or because everyone loves the guest star more than they love him. The reason that Kermit got the number two spot for that is because you see him handle those moments with grace, or at the very least, a relative amount of grace, which is why I think being green, the way that they used being green was so effective. The buildup was there, but also he wasn't projecting or displacing or anything else like that. He was just sort of sitting with the fact that his feelings had been hurt and trying to figure out how to handle it. He does create such a great avatar for Jim, trying to keep everything going backstage, but also, like Jim, being one of them as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think we give enough attention to the fact that Kermit is one of the crazy ones too. Oh, he's the one that hired the crazy ones. He's this close to snapping every moment. <laughs> My number two is a little bit of a cheat. I'm going to go with the mayhem. Oh, wow. I was happy every time they came on screen. Mm-hmm. Animal, of course, is always has always been a standout and is a standout to people. This year, maybe more than the future ones we'll see, but Zoot was great. Dr. Teeth was a little less of a personality than I remembered. Janice isn't a big character yet, but once Richard Hunt takes over, she's going to get a little bigger. But I loved watching the Muppet performers play those characters. Sometimes I was a little hard on the guest stars if their musical numbers didn't have a joke to them or something, if they were just kind of a straight up, hey, I'm going to sing this, you know, Judy Collins ballad from 1975. But with the mayhem, just want to come on and play a song. I'm there. All right. What's your number one? It was actually Animal. He's still one of my all time favorites, but specifically... Seeing Animal in these early stages, we've seen a lot of growth from a lot of the the Muppets that will become household names, but Animal's a pretty static character, and he is completely okay with who he is. Anytime you see him dip or decide to discuss things with Kermit, like, Animal's consistently living his best life, and unlike 90% of the time that I hear that phrase, I don't mind it. What I love about Animal is that he's basically a cookie monster if Cookie Monster didn't have to be on a kid's show. <laughs> that's that's a good way to put it. Again, I mean, I picked the Mayhem, so I guess I also picked Animal. <laughs> My number one is Fozzie Bear in any episode past 110. <laughs> Anytime after the Good Grief the Comedian's a Bear sketch. No, he's a nut. He's a were-a-na-na-ka-tie. Knowing what a struggle it was for them to figure out this character, you know, and taking this kind of dour, unfunny albatross and over the course of the season, just not giving up, but working at it, working at it, working at it, finally having an aha moment with that sketch and then watching it kind of fall into place. And by the time you get to the end of the season, man, they're the best comedy duo on television. Mm -hmm. 
It just took him a minute to figure out Fozzie. And once they figured out Fozzie, though, I just loved him. I just loved him. I was happy every time he was on camera. I, I found myself with a great affection for Fozzie this season that I never have had before, actually. I think the key is this. He's not bitter. Him being a failure just encourages him to try more, to try harder. I think that's the thing. I think early Fozzie felt a little bitter. And while we can all identify with that, it's not necessarily funny. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you. Hey, love you. Oh, look out. I've got some great ones for you tonight. Hey, my wife loves children, but I can't bear them. Hey, we got three kids, one of each. Oh, I'm rolling now. I'm on the roll. I'm on the roll. For a non-Muppet Show Best in Show. Now, we have not watched the entirety of the Muppet Show. And like I said, we didn't want to forget all the stuff we'd watched ahead of time. So for our last category, we're just going to do our, our non-Muppet Show Best in Show. But first, I want you to guess what my number one is. I'm guessing that your number one is either Wilkins and Wilkins or it's going to be the Frog Prince. I'm going to guess that your number one is the Cube. Yeah, you, you got me. This is the NPD. You are under arrest. Open the door. I can open the door. Make a note of this, Fitz. The prisoner resisted arrest. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. There will be no back talk from the prisoner. You have been under observation for quite some time, and we are well aware of your activities. What activities? And now we shall go about finding the proof. We have a search warrant. You mean to tell me you want to search this place? Exactly. <laughs> Be my guest. Uh, did I get you? <laughs> now, the cube is very much up my alley in a number of different ways. Yeah, I wanted to mention it on my surprises list, but I was pretty sure it was going to come up here. It's so unlike anything I think of when I think of Jim Henson, but maybe not you because of your love of things like the storyteller. Is it closer to the is it closer to storyteller Jim than some of the Muppet Show stuff is? I would argue that storyteller is closer to Muppet Show than it is to the Cube. Okay. But the Cube is very similar to Tale of Sand. I still haven't read that yet. You absolutely should. Well, we're gonna cover it. I have my graphic novel. We're and we're gonna cover it someday. I just haven't gotten to it yet. With Henson, I love the Muppets. I love the work that he was able to create and he never really stopped experimenting it does sort of give you a peek into what jim would do if he wasn't operating puppets kind of a glance into an alternate timeline yeah and that goes along with my number one because my number one is timepiece fair absolutely fair Timepiece surprised the hell out of me. It should have been my number one surprise, but I was holding it for this. I was so angry at Timepiece. I have made short films in college. Uh, they didn't look like that. I was so ready for it to be amateurish. I was so ready for it to be innovative, but kind of rough. And I don't really like short films. I, I don't really appreciate short films as an art form. Not only is it obviously wildly inventive, but it's tight. It's well edited. It tells a clear narrative while still being up for interpretation. The use of sound, the fact that he stars in it is something that like I just I didn't just didn't know that was there. Timepiece just spoke to me as a filmmaker. That was the thing pre-Muppet show that impressed me the most. And knowing that he voted against himself at the Oscars <laughs> just makes me love it even more. But it's just it's such a, an efficient piece of filmmaking and I, and I love it so much. With production on The Muppet Show not resuming until May, the cast and crew were on a four-and-a-half-month hiatus. That's a long time for anyone, creative or otherwise, to remain idle. If you're Jim Henson, a man who Jerry Jewell said was always running from time, who seemed to carry inside of him a ticking clock that began when his brother died so many years before, sitting still for that long was a metaphysical impossibility. Luckily for Jim, and for us, he already had another project ready to go. By January of 1977, Jerry Jewell was in Los Angeles writing several drafts of a script based on a treatment he had submitted the previous November. Frog Prince production designer William Beaton was in Toronto constructing the most realistic sets Henson had ever required, including a large working river suitable for both paddling and singing. 
In New York, at the Muppet Workshop, Don Saline and Caroli Wilcox were designing and building a whole new set of puppets. A young costume designer named Callista Hendrickson was probably trying to figure out what kind of sweater a porcupine would wear. Musician Paul Williams was writing a batch of new heartwarming tunes just for Jim, trying to capture that Tin Pan Alley sound that they both loved. They had two months to get it all together. Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas would begin filming in March. Next time, River, Bottom, Nightmare, Band. So that's season one of A Feed of Lunatic Daring. We're going to be back in two or three weeks. I'm not 100% sure yet with our season two, which is going to start off with something that I have seen more times than I can count and something you haven't seen. So I'm very excited about that. And then that will take us into our second season where we will be doing what we've been doing and going through The Muppet Show two episodes at a time. Um, I want to thank you, Nick, for doing this with me. This has been fun. Thanks for bringing me on. It's I've learned a lot. Jim was always a fascinating and influential person for me, but getting a, a fuller view of the work and the man has been amazing. I'm thankful more than anything. As much as I love The Muppet Show, I'm thankful for those first seven, eight episodes we did. That's stuff that I may never have watched if I wasn't on a quest, adventure, mission, whatever it was, to learn as much about him as I could and to watch everything. I don't know if I would have ever watched The Cube. And I'm so unbelievably glad that I did. I keep thinking about that little boy, the Mississippi Tom Sawyer we met in our first episode, skipping stones across the murky surface of Deer Creek, catching afternoon matinees at the temple, building radios with his big brother, sitting with his mother at the piano and showing Deer his silly cartoon monsters. Did he know then... Last time I was driving through Maryland, I stopped in University Park and found the Henson's house there. Beechwood Road is narrow, one of those neighborhood streets about a car and a half across and well-shaded by oak trees. The house is a 1,500-square-foot ranch that reminds me of the one I grew up in in eastern Ohio. I thought of Jim in the living room, on his knees in front of the television, overcome with the urge to be part of it. I saw him and Russell sitting on the bed with the only two puppetry books they could find at the library cramming for their junior morning show audition. I imagined him at the kitchen table, taking scissors, needle, and thread to his mother's old turquoise coat and thinking, yeah, that looks like a Kermit. And in college, just up the road, walking into that first puppetry class and meeting Jane, I wonder what went through her mind when Abe Lincoln asked to be her scene partner. Did he know then? Did she? Looking back, everything seems inevitable. But stories like this always do. It's easy to work a problem once you have the solution. But Jim Henson, like so many other geniuses that lead us, had the answer a long time before we did. In 1977, the morning after performing for the Queen and two days before his most famous creation would fly over the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade for the first time, the man driving Jim's car would ask him if he ever, in his wildest dreams, thought he'd have success like this. Yes, Jim Henson answered. Not only am I not surprised, but I'm disappointed that it's taken this long. Hello there, my name is Jim Henson, and I'm a puppeteer. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio.